Good morning, everybody. Isn't church fun? That's just too high. That will never do. All right, if you want to, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to continue something I started two weeks ago and was going to continue last week, but we just got train wrecked by the Holy Ghost, and we didn't do it. And if you were here last week, you know how much fun a train wreck from the Holy Spirit is. Because you got to watch the pastor get his brain scrambled. Which is normal, by the way. Scripturally speaking, that's part of the normal life in Jesus. Mark chapter 10, we're going we're gonna to be continuing what I started a couple weeks ago. Here's what I want to talk about. A couple weeks ago, we started with, uh, with this overarching umbrella concept, the, the concept being very simple, that, uh, that, that, that each of us have a life, and life is important. It's important because life is short. It's important because God has implanted His, His indelible fingerprint of His nature upon humanity. It can be marred, but it can't be removed. We, we bear the image of God, and because of that, my life is important. Not only that, but my life is short. Not only that, but my present life is exponentially affecting the age to come. So the person I am right now, it gets exponentially amplified in the age to come. That's, that's Luke chapter 19, that's Matthew chapter 25. We don't have to time to go there right now. But who you are right now, what you're doing right now, it carries significant eternal weight. And so if you wake up and you don't significantly harness your cart to the horse of the Holy Spirit, and you wake up in a year, and you are unchanged, essentially what has happened is, I have wasted one of my very important, finite years to have my heart examined, to have my heart shaped by the Holy Spirit, and I'm actually diminishing my... I'm diminishing eternity. Are we together? Life is important. You have... I went on to Google a couple couple weeks ago, and... And Google says life expectancy in the United States is 78.4 years. Do the math. How old are you? That's how much time you have left. Some of you are, going to, some of you are living on borrowed time right now. <laughs> just kidding. <clears throat> That's just me being a snarky pastor. All right, here's what we want to do. Um, I want to look at... I want to look at this, this thing that's in the human heart, and it's in every human heart that's in the room right now. And it has to do with... Uh, the fact that everybody in the room right now has a desire to be great. You know that? You, you, if you're here this morning, you're breathing. You actually have a desire to be great. No, I don't know anyone. I've met a lot of people. I've never met one single person who said to me, Adam, you know, really what I'm looking for in life is I'm just looking to be mediocre. If I could just be average, that would be really satisfactory. If I could just be a survivor, you know? I don't know anyone who's doing that. What I do know is that every person, it's something that God built into us, we have the desire to be great. We have the desire to do great things. We have the desire to accomplish great things. No one wants to be old, look back over their life and go, wow, I was just completely average and mediocre. No one wants to do that. Everyone wants to live a significant life. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We talked a little bit about it a couple weeks ago. Uh, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message. It was pretty good. Um, even if I did preach it, it was, it was, it was pretty hot. Um, yeah, and so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about greatness. And we're going to talk about what God considers great. So if you would, Mark chapter 10, verse 35. We're going to look at about 10 verses here, okay? Mark ten thirty-five. Then James and John, 
the sons of Zebedee, came to him and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. Jesus said, You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism, baptism I am baptized with? Baptized, baptized three times in one sentence. <clears throat> we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, would you open up our hearts, and would you open up our minds, and God, would you let the true word of the Scripture, the true word, go into our heart and find a place where it can grow. Amen. So here's what we've got. We've got two of Jesus' best friends, James and John. They come to Jesus. They're, they're of the twelve, the twelve are Jesus' best friends, and then within the twelve, Jesus has some best, best friends, and that's Peter, James, and John. Two of those guys, James and John, they come to Jesus, and they say, Hey, Jesus, um, we want... We want you to do uh, whatever we ask. And um, how, how many of you have ever read that and thought, that is really ridiculous? Mm-hmm. How, many, how many of you realize, how many of you can read that question and realize that's a foolish question? It's like middle school contract law. It's like, we want you to do whatever we want, right? Before you ask. If you realize that that's a stupid question, how many of you realize that Jesus certainly realized that it was a stupid question? One of the things I've realized is, in my own life, is uh, the better friends I become with someone, the weirder I get. <laughs> There's something about friendship that brings out all your idiosyncrasies, you know? And this is what's happening with James and John. They're getting around Jesus, they've become friends. They haven't just become his friends, they've become his good friends. And it's this essence of friendship that begins to bring out all their idiosyncrasies, all their weaknesses, all their insecurities, all their secret dreams, all their hopes, and all their weirdness. You know, one of the things, one of the ways that you know you have a friend is when you have somebody who will stand beside you in faith and love even when you're weird. It's one of the things I see in the scripture right now. James and John, they come to Jesus, they ask an obviously stupid question, and here's the deal. Jesus gives them this really gracious response. They say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we want. Will you do whatever we ask you to? And Jesus, this is really a big deal. Because when you read the scriptures, Jesus never answers people's questions. Have you, have you guys dealt in the Gospels enough to know that when you ask Jesus a question, he isn't going to answer? Jesus doesn't answer questions. What does Jesus do? He will ask you another question. And when he asks you a question, what happens? You look like an idiot. Uh, here's the deal. This is one of the things you need to learn. When God starts to ask you questions, he's not looking for an answer. He's already beginning to reveal your heart. But here's one of the things that we see here. Peter and James, Jesus' very good friends... They come to him with a question, and Jesus doesn't run them off. He doesn't, he doesn't answer them back with another question that's more difficult. He actually says, well, what do you want? 
And it begins to show this essence of friendship. One of the things that we see in the Gospels is that the only people who ask Jesus questions and get a response are his disciple follower friends. Every single other person, Jesus will begin to respond to them with a question. I love that because one of the things it tells me is to the extent that I begin to develop friendship with Jesus, to the extent that I become a disciple, and being a disciple means more than being saved. It means being a follower. It means I will go where you lead, Jesus, wherever that is. And there's something about discipleship. There's something about following. There's something about that lifestyle with Jesus that develops a friendship, and I can come to him, and I can get an answer for the questions that I ask. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is telling the parable of the sower. No one has any idea what it's about. And Jesus even says, hey, I speak in parables so that no no one even understands what I'm talking about unless you're really going after it. And the disciples come up to him after that little parable of the sower. You You can go back and look at it later on. And they say, Jesus, what did you mean by the parable of the sower? He says, well, let's go inside and I'll tell you. See, Jesus, there's this open communication that happens with disciples that just doesn't happen with other people. You come in to examine Jesus, he he will ask you a question. You come in for friendship, revelation gets opened up. And I love this. Verse 36, it just shows how patient that Jesus is. He's not dodging questions. He's not dodging questions. It's his intention to be an answerer. I want to talk a little bit about the question that they were asking before we get into the meat of what I want to get to. When, When James and John came to Jesus and said, hey, we want you to do whatever we ask, um, and he says, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, we want, we want, we want you to let us sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory. Um, here was the expectation that they were working off of. They had been around Jesus long enough to realize that this guy was Messiah. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us sitting on American soil 2,000 years later. But at that moment in history, Israel was oppressed by the Romans. They had an oppressive government. They had, they, so they were living in the native land okay, that they had been born into. It was the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of their forefathers had been promised this land that they'd, that they'd received from God. And so they stand on, on the soil that had been promised to them from God, except they had a foreign opposition, uh, oppressive government that ruled what was supposed to be rightfully theirs. And the Messiah, if you go back through all the scriptures, Messiah was the guy who was going to come in, kick butt, and take names. At least that was their understanding of the scripture at the time. Messiah was going to come in, kick butt, take names, establish the kingdom. And when he establishes the kingdom, it was going to be on the earth right then. And Peter and James are saying, you know, Jesus, we recognize that you're going to be king. And what we would like to be is we would like to be your chief advisors. We would like to sit on your right and we would sit on your left. You've all seen the movies, right? Every king like lives in a hall and at the end is his throne. And then there's like thrones around him, right? All of his advice. So that's what, that's what Peter and James are saying. They're saying, we want to be, we want to be on your right and left. We want to be the big dogs with you, we want all the little dogs to come and kiss our boots. We want to be great. They're saying we want to be great. They're saying, Jesus, can we please be great? That's what they're asking. When they ask that question, they're saying, can we please be great? And they're just like, they're just like you and I. They're asking to be great. <clears throat> Because everybody in here has a desire to be great. We all have a desire to be seen. 
And we all have a desire to collect everything that comes along with greatness. Um, we all have a desire for fame. We all have a desire for power. We all have a desire for sex. We all have a desire... <clears throat> we all have a desire that, that the opposite sex would just swoon in our presence, you know. Just step into the room and the ladies just... You think I'm kidding. It's actually in you. And it takes time to, for it to, to work its way out. No, we have a desire that people would name their children after us. We have a desire for friends. We have, we have a desire to collect friends and stack friends on top of our friends until we have no more room in our life for friendships. And we have a desire to be the kind of people who have so many friends that when people come up to us, we don't even go look for friends. They come to us. And when they come to us and say, hey, can I please be your friend? We actually look at them and go, you know, I can't. I, I've got too many friends already. Maybe in the next ice age, come and see me. And by the way, it won't be a problem because I'm, I'm going to have my body cryogenically frozen. We, desire, we, have this, we have these concepts of greatness, and it's, it's running on, on everyone. And not only that, but there seems to be something about being around Jesus that brings out our dreams and brings out our desires for greatness. One of the things I see when I read the Gospels is, is it's that, the, that this little conversation isn't, isn't just located in Mark chapter 10, but if you flip your page one, one to the left, it's actually in Mark chapter 9 as well, and the disciples are traveling down the road, and one day they say, hey, Jesus, they're, begin, they're, they're arguing about who's great, and Jesus overhears them and he says, hey, I, I know what you guys are talking about, and if you want to be great, you have to be the servant. What, one of the things that I see is that we all have this desire to be great, we all have this desire to do great things, and it comes out in life, but there's something about being around the Lord, there's something about being a friend with Jesus that actually amplifies that desire to be great and it actually brings out us in us even more. And here's the thing I want you to notice. Jesus doesn't squash anybody's desire to be great. He redirects. Look at the passage. And you can go back and look at Mark chapter 9. He doesn't squash anyone's desire to be great. He redirects. Uh, and here's, here's one of the reasons I think that people get around Jesus and then begin to get a vision for greatness and doing great things. Because let's just look at the, who Jesus is in a snapshot. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He saves, he heals, he delivers. He sows those, right? He saves, he heals, he delivers. He has power, over, he has power and authority over wind and waves. He walks on water. He sleeps during storms. And when he's awakened, he just gets out on the edge of the boat like Leo. <clears throat> and rather than saying, I'm the king of the world, he just says, peace be still. And every, he can take a few loaves of bread and he can just break it and start handing it out to everyone. Right? This is who Jesus is. And then here's the backside of that. The backside of Jesus' extreme greatness is, and it's running in all of his disciples. He's from Nazareth. He's a carpenter. And he was from the poorest town in Bethlehem. That's where he was born. He was born in a barn. And there's this little thing that began to work in the disciples, and it begins to work in anyone who becomes friends with Jesus. If a poor carpenter from Nazareth can heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, speak to the wind and the waves, multiply bread, then maybe I can. And it's actually part of the power and the message of the incarnation is that Jesus, when he was when he was out and about, he didn't do anything by playing the God card. He, played, he did everything by playing the submission to the Father card. And it, and it sparks this desire for greatness in everyone. You get around Jesus, 
you're going to start dreaming about doing great things. Because in Jesus is someone who did great things as a man. So Jesus awakens greatness. And one of the things I want to, I want to tell everyone in the room this morning is that you were, you were actually made for greatness. You were made to do great things. And when God crafted humanity, he had you in mind. And when he crafted humanity, he looked at Adam and Eve and he says, here's the earth, subdue it and rule over it. Great things. Go do great things. Every single person sitting in the room right now is made for something great. When I was a kid, I remember um, I wanted to do some great things. Uh, I had two major things I can remember. I was trying to review my life a little bit earlier that I wanted to to be or do when I was a kid. Um, There's like one A, one B, and then two. Uh, One A is I I wanted to be the shooting guard for UK. And when I was a kid, in my basement, my father put up a, a, a wooden backboard and a hoop and I would go down and I would shoot in the basement. You know, it's eight foot ceiling, so a little tiny basketball. I would play for hours. And I didn't just want to be the shooting guard for UK, but uh, when I was growing up, there was this uh, guy that no one in here hardly will remember, but it matters to me, so I have to talk about him. Uh, there was this guy, his name was Chris Mullen, and he played for St. John's and he had the sweetest stroke that anyone's ever seen in their life. Anybody remember Chris Mullins, the, the flat top? I'm like, he's white, and he can shoot. He just dominates. I'm like, I want to be Chris Mullen, you know? I want to be on Kentucky, but I want to have a Chris Mullen stroke. I want to go in and, I'll, you know, Rex Chapman, Chris Mullen. It's me. Do it. Those are my dreams, you know? And then I had another dream. Uh, the other dream I had was I-, I wanted to be a veterinarian, and I had that dream right up until the time I saw Ben Cox stick his arm in a cow's butt up to his shoulder. <laughs> and then I decided I'll take a new dream. Time for a new dream. <laughs> but one of the things that happens is when we, when we come into contact with our dreams is it causes us to come into contact with all of our weaknesses. It causes, when, when we begin to dream big dreams, when we begin to dwell on doing great things, uh, it actually brings us into contact with all of our weaknesses And it causes us to come into contact with all of our insecurities. And it causes us to come into contact with all of our fears. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know, you get the big dream, I'm going to be the shooting guard for UK, and then I realize I am slow and can't jump. (laughs) And my release is slow. And it gets blocked a lot. My middle school years were just spent getting blocked. That's just... That's what I did. There's something about that. When we begin to dream, especially when we begin to dream with God, it it brings us into contact with our own weaknesses. Idealism gets wiped off. Look at verse 38. Reality hits idealism. Verse 38. Jesus says, hey guys, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? See, reality hits idealism, and idealism is probably the biggest enemy to greatness. If you live in idealism, you'll probably never do anything great. Because as soon as things get hard, as soon as your insecurities come up, and as soon as your fears bubble to the surface, you quit. And here's one of the things. Jesus is such a good Jesus that he actually offers reality checks. And he, he, he offers reality checks to every dream and to every request. And the reason he does this is because 
idealism is just a killer. So Jesus comes in, he says, okay, you guys want to do great things. You want to sit in a position that I actually can't give away. But let me ask you something else. James, John, can you drink the cup I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? That's a mouthful. And here's, here's what Jesus is actually saying. When he talks about the cup, he's talking about a cup of suffering. You all remember in the garden, Jesus says, hey, Father, if you can take this away from me, take it away from me. And what was he asking to be taken away? The cup. What was the cup? His suffering. So when Jesus says, hey, can you drink my cup? He's asking, hey, can you suffer along with me? Then it gets, then it gets even worse. He says, can you be baptized with my baptism? And what is Jesus' baptism? It's his death. So Jesus is saying, hey, can you, can you drink the cup of suffering that I'm going to drink? And can you, bab- can you be baptized under death as I'm going to be baptized? And what do, what do James and John say? Sure. What does it reveal? It reveals they are foolish. It reveals they're absolutely foolish. At that very moment, Peter... Peter's not in the... Who am I talking about? James and John. At that very moment, James and John have no clue what Jesus is talking about. Zero. How many of you have ever gotten into something and realized after you got into it that this is way different than I thought? Come on. Anybody in here ever gotten in over their head? Just 48 easy payments of $7 million. I always love it when it says 48, you know, easy payments. Really? On what planet, pal? Mm. Anybody in here ever said yes to something not knowing what you were saying yes to? Anybody in here ever got married? (laughs) I love you, baby. You're my favorite. So Jesus says, hey, can you drink my cup? Can you be baptized with my baptism? And James and John are like, yes, yes. And Jesus is like, you're absolutely right. You're going to drink the cup, and you're going to be baptized with my baptism. So number one, a couple things I want you to know here. Number one is that James was the first martyr, okay? It's in Acts chapter 12. James died by the sword. So he, he he got exactly what? At, so, at a certain level, he, he, what Jesus had promised. He'd he, he taken the cup of suffering, and he, uh, he, uh, he took the baptism plunge as well. And John, um, John was never martyred he, because Jesus promised that he wouldn't be. But there was a moment in John's life, suffering didn't leave John's life. Uh, there was a moment in John's life where he was surrounded and was nearly boiled in hot oil but escaped. Now, how many of you all want to, want to live a life with Jesus that leads you up to the edge of a boiling vat of oil. Okay, how many, how many of us want to do great things? Okay, how many of you want to live a life that will bring you to the edge of a boiling vat of oil? See, the reason I'm bringing this up is, is because the Lord brings it up. Everyone, every one of us wants to do great things. You're made to do great things. And because of, because of the condition of the world, suffering and death is built in. And anyone who's unwilling to look at suffering, not, not take it on with a martyr syndrome, but anyone who's, who's unwilling to look at suffering, deal with suffering, and embrace death will never do great things. Reality check. Reality check. See, here's the deal. 
hard times, suffering, trouble is built into the matrix. Okay? You don't have to go looking for it. It'll come finding you. But if you want to do something great, if you want to do something great, you are going to drink the cup. You're going to drink the cup. It stands to reason like this. You know, if you... If the great thing you want to do is easy, then everyone would do it. And if everyone did it and it were easy, then it wouldn't be valuable. You know, there's a reason that gold costs so much money. It's because it's buried under mountains and it takes, it takes untold manpower equipment to extract it. It's hard to get. It's rare. Diamonds are formed over thousands of years and they lay under mountains. See, anybody, we're all wanting to do great things. Like, here's the deal. One of the things you've got to know about great things is there's going to be suffering and trouble built into it. If it were easy, everyone would do it. And if everyone did it, it wouldn't be valuable. All right? Some of you are like, man, that's a major bummer. You know, I'm not trying to, like, bum anyone out. I just want to tell you the truth. It's a bigger bummer when you walk out into the world with idealism and realize, wow, this is not going to work out the way I thought. I need a new promise, Jesus. <laughs> And here's what I want you to notice. Look at verse 38. It means so much to me. Notice that Jesus gives a reality check, but he doesn't kill the desire for greatness. Even though the disciples are 100% clueless about what they're even asking for. See, the world counts greatness in certain ways. The world counts greatness in terms of who's first, who's boss, and who is telling who what to do, who has the most cash, who has the most stuff, and who has the most followers on Twitter. Kanye West has 2,289,000 followers on Twitter. Yeah, Peter, you got to hang with me here, buddy, okay? Kanye, Kanye has 2,289,000 followers on Twitter. Oprah's got 5 million. Oprah is playing second fiddle to Ashton Kutcher, who has 6,303,000. I did a great deal of research this week. I can find no one on Twitter with more followers than Ashton Kutcher. I'm sure there is. I, I'm just telling you, I can't find them. This is one of the ways the world counts greatness. Uh, currently, right now, I have 363 followers on, on my, my Twitter for my blog. So everybody wants to do great things. Everyone wants to be seen. Everyone wants to be an overcomer. And one of the things I'm, I'm really convinced of is that God's not opposed to greatness, at least not in the most generic sense. The trouble is, and the real question is, why do I want to be great? What's at the bottom of my desire? Where's my motivation springing from? That's what Jesus is getting at. He's, he's always looking at the heart. You know, all of these desires are common to humanity, and they, most of them run counter to the kingdom heart. One of the things that all these desires share in common is they, they, they share this, and it's really subtle. It's this subtle desire to take people and see them as a commodity for my own use. That's what the world looks, and that's how the world views greatness. The world views greatness like this. How can I extract pleasure from people around me? And how can I begin to trade on people as though they were dollars in my pocket? 
And people become not human, but they become a commodity for me to marshal, a resource for me to gather and direct. And that runs counter to the kingdom. But here's Jesus, and Jesus came to serve, and and I love what Jesus says. Jesus came to serve, and in doing so, Jesus went to everybody at the back of the line, and he treats them like they're at the front of the line. That's what kingdom greatness is. Go to the back of the line, treat the people at the back of the line like they're at the front of the line. And this is not just any old Jesus, but this is the Jesus who created the heavens and the earth. And Colossians says, in Colossians chapter 1, it says this. It says that everything that was made was made by him and is currently being held together by him right now. Jesus, who went to the back of the line. He made everything and he holds it all together. Like the reason that your atoms in your body don't just explode into a million fragments is because the Lord Jesus sits on a throne and says it should not be so. The reason that you respirate, the reason that you take in air right now and that you breathe in oxygen and you exhale CO2 is because the Lord Jesus currently reigns in heaven and says it should be so. He holds He created all things and he holds them all together, even right now, right down to the fabric of society. And here's where the wonder of Jesus really, really begins to get to me. Jesus is the absolute king of the universe, and he came to serve. And that's what greatness is. Greatness is having the strength to subdue men, but choosing to strengthen them. Greatness is is having the strength to subdue men but strengthen them. And part of the wonder of the incarnation it is that the unlimited God took off all of his royal vestments. He took off all of his omnis and he awakened in his mother's arms experiencing life according to space and time. He learned, he worked, he felt, he hoped, he was tempted and he overcame. He overcame every trap and snare that human life has succumbed to. Not only is he the God of the universe but he's the God of the earth. He's the son of man who lived a spotless life, perfect in every way, well-suited for ruling and extracting from others the pleasures of light, yet he did not, and that's what greatness is. It's, it's, it's being stronger, it's being smarter, it's being holier, it's being more devoted, and rather than using that to subdue people, Jesus chose to use all of that to strengthen people. Jesus says, Jesus, this is what the Lord did, He became dirty so that you could become clean. And that's stunning. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's stunning. That's what what greatness is. He stepped out of heaven, which is the place of God's perfect rule so that you and I might step out of a ruined life of self-indulgence and experience the reign of God. And that's stunning. He's the high king of heaven, but he became the suffering servant, and that's stunning. So what is greatness? Greatness is Jesus. It's it's really simple. Greatness is Jesus. Jesus is the model by which all other standards of greatness have to be measured against. If you can't find in Jesus the greatness you're going for, it isn't great. It's a waterless oasis. 
It's, it's a mirage in the desert. It is, it is a house of horrors. It's, it's a haunted house with mirrors and a maze, and you'll never find your way out. If you can't find your, if you can't orient your life around Jesus' north star of what greatness is, if you can't find it in there, then it isn't great. He's the model. And so this begs, um, this begs a certain kind of question. Uh, does this mean, it actually begs several questions. Number one, does it mean that, um, that God is against intellect? Does it mean that it's better to be an idiot? Uh, does it mean that God prefers poverty? Uh, does it mean that it's better to be weak? Does it mean that it's better to be a no account? Should we look to avoid all position and influence altogether? And the answer is actually no. Because in the kingdom of heaven and, and when it comes to Jesus, the position of your heart is way more important than the position of your life. So can a rich person be great? Yeah, rich people can be great. Sometimes more difficult for them. Can a poor person be great? Yeah. It's one of the wonders of the kingdom of heaven. Is wherever you're at in life, you can be great. Martin Luther King said this, everyone can be great because everyone can serve. You don't need a college degree to serve. You don't even need good grammar. You just need grace and love. See, from God's perspective, it's the position of your heart. It always trumps the position of your life. You'll know you're catching God's you know you're catching on to God's kind of life when your desire to be served is beginning to be trumped by your desire to serve. You'll know that kingdom greatness is beginning to come over you. Jesus said these words to him. He says, in verse 43, he says, Not so with you guys. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Not so with you. You should underline that. Greatness for disciples is always connected to serving people. Always. That's what disciples do. Disciples serve. Everywhere they go, they serve. Um, And and one of the things that I want us to see here is that Jesus' kind of life and Jesus' kind of greatness, it's meant to be it's meant to be lived out in real life, and it's meant to be lived out in service. And all of this, I just want to put this in a really practical con- concept for us, um, because this is really important. These words that Jesus is telling us right here, don't look to be served, but go and serve others. The, concept, uh, the construct for this is, is home, work, and school. All right? Home, work, and school. Those are the major areas that God wants to move through us. Um, you know, if you're a dad in the room, the number one way to be great is to begin to serve your wife and your children. And the number one way that dads serve their wife and children is go out and get a job and bring home the bacon. That's first. And then, and then be, be the guy who sets the pace for love in the home. That's what fathers do. They're providers. They, they generate. They don't, fathers, a real father isn't a consumer. He's a producer. That's what fathers do. It happens at home. It happens at school. Like you're, A lot of us in here are college students. Greatness in college is to begin to not only do well in your studies, but it's to begin to serve those around me. Hey, the, look, the guy behind me is really struggling. 
And I have no problem with calculus. Now I'm telling a lie, okay? Where did that come from? A, li- a, a, a lying devil jumped on me. <laughs> but that's the heart. That's the heart. The guy behind me is struggling getting, getting an F. I've got straight A's. Maybe I should take 20 minutes of my week and get this guy up to speed, get him up to sea level. Maybe he'll never make a B. Maybe he'll never make an A. It's okay. How can I serve those around me? You know, if, you're, if your gospel doesn't work in real life, then your gospel doesn't work. Not so with you. Disciples serve. They serve at home. They serve at work. They serve in the dorm. Yeah, so the desire to be great and to do great things, um, that's a natural thing. I actually believe that was put in by God, but Jesus' words here are words of caution for everyone. Be careful how you build and watch over your life. Um, I love what Proverbs says. Proverbs says this in Proverbs 4.23. It says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Uh, um, Another place in the gospel, Jesus says, Hey, don't just wash the outside of the cup, but wash the inside of the cup. See, what, what is happening on the inside always spills over into the outside. And what's going on on the inside is infinitely more important than what's being presented at any moment on the outside. Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Here's the problem. What if you've got a poisoned heart? What if you've got a poisoned heart? Here's the deal. If you've got a poisoned heart, then your whole life will be poisoned. Every single thing. Above all else. And when, when the proverb says above all else, one of the things that, that is being pointed out to us is that above all of our other actions, not above loving God or anything like that, but above all other life focuses, one of the most primary things we need to give ourselves to is watching over my heart. Not just watching over my heart, but the proverb says we should guard our heart. We should stand watch over our heart because it's the wellspring of life. It informs my desires. That's what he's saying. The heart informs my desires. So I need to begin to practically, in my life, begin to watch over like a, like a guard at a prison, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a father who, who's up in the middle of the night when something goes bump. I need to begin to watch over my heart, because I, and the way I practically do that is I practically look out for what is informing my heart's desires. I've, I've looked at my life in the last three months, and I've noticed, wow, my desires have changed. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. I need to take a reflective and meditative moment and go back to what has influenced my heart. Not just what's presenting in the day. Not just what's right up here in front of my face. Not just what someone else is complaining about. But I need to go back to the source and say, what have I allowed in my heart? Something is growing. To do any other thing is cutting off weeds at the top of the ground. Dandelions just spring right back up. And not only that, but they spring back up a lot thicker and stronger. I've always been a landscaper. I know about that. You, you pull a dandelion out. If you don't get the root, it comes back three times more. Guard your heart. It means protected. We need to protect our hearts. Here, here's what I want to tell you, though, about guard your heart. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean isolate from people and avoid intimacy and avoid getting hurt. See, this is part of the kingdom paradox. Guard your heart. When, when the proverb says guard your heart, it doesn't mean avoid intimacy and avoid people, isolate, and try not to get hurt. 
It doesn't mean that at all. It means live life, live life open. Live, live life with your arms wide open and your heart wide open. Invite people in. And when they hurt you, because they will, when they hurt you, because they will, because it's human nature, watch close over your heart and how it reacts that you not become bitter and angry and self-destruct. Be, become the kind of person that's unoffendable. That's tough. It's really hard. It's really hard. You gotta go, we got to guard over our hearts because our hearts are so easily wounded, but the worst part is they're, they're so easily exalted. The heart is the seat of all our desires, so we need to watch over what informs our desires. You know, just the things... The things that we watch, the things we listen to, the people that we're around inform our desires. How many of you have ever experienced this? You felt totally fine about who you were, then you go to the mall and you hate yourself. I'm being a little extreme, but let me, let me break that down. You felt totally fine early that morning. You went to the mall, and about 30 minutes after you're in the mall, you feel like, I'm the biggest dork in the world. My pants are awful. My shirt's awful. My shoes are awful. Uh, my tattoos are no good. That, uh. Anybody ever had that feeling? So we have to watch over what informs our heart. I'm being shaped from the outside. Everything I'm taking in is beginning to take root, and it's taking root, and it's beginning to it's beginning to come out. That's just going to the mall. Somebody in here is like, "Oh my gosh, the pastor didn't want us going to the mall." No, don't be ridiculous. If you can, if you can take my words two ways, like one's like a smart way and one's stupid, take it the smart way, okay? <laughs> Just in general, just want to throw that out. It'll help you and it'll help me. See, if the heart's poisoned, then everything's poisoned. If the spring is poisoned, the stream is poisoned. And if the stream is poisoned, the lake's poisoned. See, if, if the chicken's got salmonella, the sandwich is ruined. <laughs> just think about it. That's a good word right there. It just popped in my head. I have, no, I have no idea where that came from. Yeah, but if the heart's poisoned, then everything's poisoned. It's a big deal for us because we're, one of the things that God's doing right now is He's waking everybody in the room up to new realities of what's possible. And one of the things that's happening here, and I think it's been happening for the last six months, is, is God's been delivering us from this religious that comes on God's people that says, you just have to be the most insignificant, weak, Grovelers. That's what God's people are. We're insignificant, we're weak, and we're grovelers. We don't do anything cool, we don't do anything good, we don't do anything great, we just, we just get by, but we're going to heaven. Yeah. And one of the things that's been happening around here is, is God's been speaking to people and beginning to take just this religious spirit off of us. And one of, the, one of the outcomes of having the religious spirit taken off of you is that you begin to dream big God dreams. That's what's happening. Some of you, some of you are like, some of you are totally frustrated in your life and it's because you're not living from the fountain of your heart that wants to do something great, you know? Everybody in here was made to do more than just wake up and grind. There's a scripture that haunts me. It's Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, you know? Freely you receive, freely give. 
heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, cleanse the lepers. It haunts me. And here's why it haunts me. It haunts me in a good way, by the way. Back to that, if you can take it one way or another, take it a good way. Yeah, um, it haunts me in a good way. And the reason it haunts me is because I'm a person who's received from God. And as a person who's received from God, apparently, I'm, I'm empowered and even expected to go and, and dump what I've received out. Every, every, place, every place where I've received healing, I'm called to be a healer. Every place where I've been set free from captivity, I'm, I'm called to be a bondage breaker. And in the kingdom of heaven, that's a great thing. That serves people. So it's a big deal for us. We need to begin to watch over our heart because our desires inform the rest of our life. Um, it's a real big deal for me. I, w- I want to do just like even a bit of transparency pastor moment. Um, everybody in here knows that I love music and I love worship, right? Yeah, I, l- I love music and I love worship. I think it's one of the main things that we're supposed to do. It's, it's the second banner. The first one, I defy anyone to take it down. The second one, I'd probably wrestle you over as well. But I love worship. And um, before I was pastor here, I was worship leader here for eight years. And as a part of being worship pastor here for eight years, I uh, wrote a lot of songs. Uh, like a lot of the songs that we still sing are songs that I wrote. And when I was writing songs, um, I never had a thought in my head, you know, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to travel the world. And I, that was never really in my head. The only thing that was really in my head or heart was, I love God and I want to sing something to Him. And I, I, there just aren't words. I, I don't know how to describe it. Like when you're a creative person, sometimes you just get frustrated with the lack of words. I, and I just felt like I felt so held in worship sometimes here together as a family. So I just began to write from this place of God, I love you, and I want new words and I want new melodies. And I just want to express my heart to you. Anyway. And oddly enough, it became a blessing to the church and yada, yada. And eight or nine years later, you know, uh, Vineyard Music picked up, has picked up four of my songs for publishing over the last couple of years. And, and, and it, having a little bit of success in that has awakened things in my heart that I didn't know that were there. Good and bad. This is what I'm talking about. This is, this is the, when you begin to do great things, you realize who you are. Um, good and bad and and one of the things that that um that you have to deal with is or at least i've had to deal with is you know now what are my motivations for writing music is is my motivation still the motivation that god i love you and i need i need new words to tell you that you're great and i need new melodies that make my heart want to get up in the morning or is my is my motivation to get a royalty check that's a little bit bigger than the one i had last week just something i'm in processing you know because god looks at the heart you know here's the deal i could end up writing 157 hit songs and meet the lord one day and it'd be worth nothing i don't want to live life from a poisoned heart so i've given us a bit of a paradoxical message this morning number one everybody in here has a desire to do great things everyone in here is actually uh God equipped to do great things. And the paradox is, watch over your heart because God knows, God knows the motivations of our heart. See, on the outside, it looks the same to everyone else. For a while, anyway. It looks the same. You don't know my, I mean, here's the deal. Unless you know me really well, Heather knows me well enough to probably know where my motivation meter goes. But 
For the most part, no one else in here does. <clears throat> it's hidden. So can my, can my great desire follow God's parameters for greatness? That's the question this morning. Who in here wants to do something great? Awesome. Can my desires to do something great, can it fall within God's parameters for greatness? Serving others. How do we do that? Well, find the things that we love and begin to look for ways to employ what we love in serving other people. That's greatness. Become a person who's a producer and not just a consumer, especially when it comes to people. That's what a father is, you know? Mm -hmm. Begin to live life with a generous spirit. I'll tell you just on the practical side, um, I, have, I have found out in my life that people who will buy you lunch have a pretty good walk with Jesus. You think I'm joking. The guys who will come in and put their 20s down for you to eat some lunch, boom, without you even getting a chance to put your hand in the pocket, it's a pretty good chance that guy is walking tight with Jesus. Because it's an overflow heart. How can I serve people in every single way? How can I take my 20s and make them yours? I mean, it's, it's really that practical. I, wanna, I mean, I'm telling you, it's really that practical. Serving people is really as practical as saying, to the best of my ability, I'm going to be the lunch buyer. Now, just translate that into your life in a million other ways, okay? Awesome. If you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up? Thank you, Seth. That was incredible. <laughs> you jumped like a jackrabbit over that. That was really dramatic. I liked it. <laughs>